All right. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have brought us to the end of 30 weeks of studying together. Thank you for (coughs) providing for us in so many ways during that time. Thank you for your word, which is the most important food that we will ever receive. We do pray, Father, that you would take the things that we have learned, that you would impact them into us and deeply into our hearts, that you would (coughs) enable us to live according to the truth that we have learned and share it with others. We thank you again for the great meal we just shared and for those who prepared it so kindly. We ask that your spirit would again teach us and guide us as we turn to your word. And we thank you through your son. Amen. All right. Well, in our first hour, we're going to be looking at spiritual gifts and tongues. These are two special topics. Um, We'll spend most of the time talking about tongues. I don't know if if this will be controversial in this group or not. I'll present some things to you that will be probably a little different than what you've heard, but not that much different. Okay, let's talk about spiritual gifts. By the way, this this isn't in the presentation, but... Well, never mind. I won't say that. Let's just stick with what's here. Okay. If you look in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, and try to build a list of the different gifts that you see there, you will come up with something like this. Now, there's an extensive list in your notes. It's all laid out in a chart there, and you can look at that later. But... As I read through through this list, notice that there are different kinds of things in there. Apostles, prophets, helps, evangelists, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, pastor, teacher, exhortation, faith, healing, miracles, discerning spirits, giving, showing mercy, administration, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. That's a strange list because the things in it are not all the same. Some are people, some are verbs, some are adjectives. This is just taking it right out of Scripture, and it's kind of interesting the way that the Holy Spirit describes these things. Now, generally speaking, the gifts are abilities or they are persons. Ephesians says that Christ gave to the church apostles apostles and pastor teachers and evangelists some of the gifts are actually people most of the time when we're talking about spiritual gifts though we're not talking about people we're talking about something that God gives to individual believers and that's more in the area of abilities now 1 Corinthians I think that's supposed to be chapter 12 11 indicates that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as it pleases Him. And that very statement is very important in the discussion because there is a tendency among some groups of Christians to argue either that everybody should have certain gifts or that we should seek certain gifts. And both of those ideas tend to run contrary to the idea that the Holy Spirit sovereignly distributes the gifts as it pleases him. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. Now the purpose of of the gifts, and you all know this, the gifts are given to members of the body so that those members can serve other members. And so the idea of gifts are a means where we can build each other up and not a means by which we can puff ourselves up. Remember Paul rebuking the Corinthians for being puffed up over certain gifts? That's not what they're for. Now, if you turn to 1 Peter 4.10, there's an interesting statement there, and again, this is very helpful 
in the discussion of how we get gifts. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, As or because each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now Peter says every believer has a gift. Now that doesn't rule out the possibility that some might have more than one gift. But it seems to indicate that there's no such thing as a believer who doesn't have a gift. And if that's true, it must be that the gifts are bestowed at the time of your salvation. Otherwise, there would be believers who didn't have gifts. Okay? So, that's the argument that says gifts are given at the time of conversion. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and look at the very last verse. Well, actually, let's, let's start reading with verse 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, <clears throat> after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, what's the rhetorical question, uh, the rhetorical answer Paul is anticipating? No. Okay? Now, when you come to the next verse, I hope you'll read that and go, huh? But earnestly desire the best gifts. Does any Bible say anything different than that? Okay, greater <laughs> gifts. Okay? Every one of your translations, including mine, is wrong in my opinion, and I'll tell you why. Okay, You've all read this chapter. You know that the argument of this chapter is that gifts are given by the Holy Spirit sovereignly, that gifts are for mutual edification, that nobody has all the gifts, and that everybody needs the ministry of other believers who have gifts that they don't have. We just read the verses where Paul goes through the list and he says nobody has all the gifts, and he says some gifts are more important than others, does it make sense for him then to say, but earnestly desire the best gifts? doesn't make any sense. And you know what? That's not what it says. I'll tell you why I think that's not what it says. In the Greek language, the second person plural of the indicative normal statement is the same as the second person plural of the command. Okay? Um, and let me put it this way. The way, uh, let me say it more clearly. Our Bibles all translated as a command, but earnestly desire the best gifts. That's a command. Well, in Greek, the form of the command is the same as the indicative, which is a simple statement. Simple statement would be, but you are earnestly desiring the best gifts. Now try that on in place. Paul just said nobody has all the gifts. Some gifts are more important than others. Tongues is at the bottom of the list. The Holy Spirit dispenses the gifts. It doesn't make sense for him to say seek the best gifts because first of all you can't seek gifts. The Spirit gives them and that's his business. And secondly, Paul isn't going to say seek the best gifts. He's going to say, use what you've got because the Spirit has given it to you. It's a rebuke. He says, but you are earnestly seeking the best gifts and that's not what I want you to do. Can you see it? You see that? I do not know why our Bibles translate it this way. It makes no sense. Okay, and the footnote? Good, good. That's the NIV, I think. Yeah. See, the but doesn't make sense if it's a command, and the command doesn't make sense in context. Why would Paul tell them to eagerly desire what the Spirit chooses what they, when the Spirit chooses what they get? So, <clears throat> I believe that that is 
mistranslated in most of our Bibles, and it's a rebuke. And Paul is saying, don't run after gifts. Find out what you've got and use it for the benefit of other people. Does that make sense? Well, okay. Well, what does he do in the next chapter? I'm glad you brought that up, Tommy. In the next chapter, he forgets gifts, doesn't he? And talks about what? Love. And the goal of love is to do what? It's to serve, exactly. That's what chapter 13 is all about. It's about selfless service to others. And he's saying, stop chasing after the gifts. The Spirit already gave you your gift. Find out what it is and use it to serve others instead of chasing after gifts you don't have. Can you see that? Belen, you're going to ask me a question. But, but he is implying that there are gifts that are better than others, or that is also Oh, he, well, he starts to imply it in chapter 12. He states it very strongly in chapter 14 when he says, I'd rather, I'd rather you prophesy than speak in tongues. And prophesying there is just preaching. Right, right. Yeah. Now, lest I sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, um, I do believe Paul regards some gifts as more important, but he regards no gift as unimportant. And when we get to chapter 14, he's not going to say don't speak in tongues. He's going to say if you speak in tongues, do it in the right way. And he's going to say don't forbid anybody to speak in tongues. Bob, you had a question? I'm going to ask you later. Okay, okay. And we may get we may get to it. Okay. Now the reason I said possibly afterward as well is that 1 Corinthians 12:31 is understood by most people as a command to seek the greater gifts, but I don't think it is. And so I would actually cross this out. I I I don't know any basis upon which to say you should not ask God for a gift that you don't already have. I don't see any way to forbid that. But I do think it's clear that every believer gets at least one gift at the moment of his conversion. And if you want to pray to God and ask for another one, who am I to say don't do it? But I won't guarantee he'll give it to you. It's, it's, it's possible, but I, aside from that verse, I'm not aware of anything in Scripture that would suggest that gifts are given at any time other than it than when you're saved. Okay? So that's why I say I won't rule it out, but I don't think it's clearly stated at all. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about the differences between spiritual gifts and natural talents. And this is pretty obvious. Gifts are of a spiritual nature. They have to do with ministry to others in a spiritual way. Talents have a wider range. Gifts are always for serving God. Now, I would say largely serving God through serving others in the church. And talents can be used to serve mankind in general. Now, I think some of the gifts that we receive from the Holy Spirit can be used to serve mankind in general, but some are really only appropriate within the church. Um, so, you know, this isn't, this isn't hard and fast. Now, gifts are received at spiritual birth and talents are received, I wanted to say at physical birth, but probably at physical conception. They're genetic things. They're, you know, what God wires into you. We were talking about natural-born engineers as opposed to educated engineers. There are a lot of natural-born engineers in this room who never went to school, but they're just good with their hands and good at making things. Um, spiritual gifts are given only to believers. Talents are given to all people, right? Okay. <coughs> sometimes that some people had a natural bent in one direction and then when they get saved God gives them a spiritual gift that moves in the, that direction but I don't know that there's a general rule now purposes of spiritual gifts um, 
if we were to look at Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, and you all know these passages well, one of the purposes of the gifts is to unify the body, to draw us together through mutual provision and mutual dependence. I need what you can do and you need what I can do. That's the way God has made us. There's no believer who has all the gifts. So no believer has the right to say, I don't need to be part of the church. Even if he had all the gifts, he would be like a race car sitting in the garage all the time, wouldn't he? Because the purpose of the gifts is to what? Serve others. Okay. These same passages argue that the spiritual gifts enable us to perform all the functions that the body should perform. And lastly, uh, and Ephesians 4 goes into this strongly, the spiritual gifts provide the necessary means for corporate and individual maturity under the headship of Christ. Let me read these verses. Ephesians 4, 13, and 14. Well, let's start with verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, <clears throat> till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we shall no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every part supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's really what it's all about. Okay. All right. Some practical considerations. These are just some ideas. I think you'll see wisdom in them. Whoever you are, if you're a believer, you have a gift. You should use it. Every member of the body should be serving. You should be serving other members and serving God by doing that. Okay? I think the best way to identify your gift if you don't know what it is is to try different ministries and see where you can make a contribution. See where you fit in. See where you find joy. I think you generally find joy exercising your gift, whatever it is. Um, I think it's true that God gives the gifts but the gifts require cultivation and practice, at least in some cases, in order to maximize them. Hey, David, would you say that one of the ways of determining what your gift is is to always hear what's the response you get from fellow believers? Sure, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Try a ministry and see how people respond. You know, if I got up on the stage and sang, you'd all know that I didn't have the gift of music. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right. People will generally recognize your gift. <clears throat> Number four, don't let your gift make you proud or inflexible. In other words, don't say no if someone else asks you to help with a ministry which is not your gift. You know, if your ministry is leadership and someone asks you to help out in the nursery, that doesn't mean you can't help out in the nursery. Okay, number five, use your gift to help others, not puff yourself up. Consider the possibility that you might have more than one gift. I think some believers do, perhaps many do. Um, and this is an important one. Don't be afraid to ask others to use their gifts to help you. If there's something you need that another believer can help you with, you shouldn't be ashamed to ask for their help. You know, we tend to be rugged individualists, especially in America. We don't like to ask for help, but I think we should. And, you know, 
one of the greatest kindnesses you can do to another believer is to allow them to help you. Give them the blessing of helping you. Okay. That's the end of our discussion on tongues. Any questions? I know we haven't gone very deeply into this. I, I'm sorry, on spiritual gifts. John. Sorry. <laughs> no, I missed something. Let's say a smaller church. They may not have all of the gifts that Yeah, I think it's indisputable that in a smaller church you may not initially have all the gifts. But that doesn't mean the church can't do all the functions of a church. It just means that God hasn't provided the best tools yet. Um, Tommy? I think grammatically, pastor-teacher is one gift. Um, if you go through the grammar of that passage, there's really a strong argument that pastor-slash-teacher is one person. Um and a pastor teacher generally, you know, in our in our church polity would be the teaching elder, at least, or the teaching elder might be a pastor teacher. There might be other pastor teachers in the body too. Tommy, go ahead. So a pastor really should have the gift of teaching if he is a quote unquote pastor teacher. Um. <clears throat> yeah, I would think so. Now, when we talk about what a pastor should or shouldn't do or what gifts he should or shouldn't have, we're already making assumptions as to whether there is such an office as pastor. Now, I, I think there is in Scripture, or at least such a role. Um, but, I mean, suppose you had a tiny church. You know, Glenn and Mary have planted churches. You, know, you plant a church, what do you do if within that body you don't have anybody who has the gift of teaching? Well, okay. <laughs> Send them to Emmaus so they get the gift. No, I, I think I think what you do is you train somebody to teach anyway. And, and by the way, you may think nobody has the gift, and you may discover that somebody had it, but it was kind of latent and hadn't come out. Okay, Bob, you had a question, I think, or Becca. Oh, I've intentionally jumped over those. <laughs> There's something in the notes on it. Go ahead. differ. Okay. The, the reason I put it in the list is because God put it in the list. Okay. Um, there's, there's a lot of debate, frankly, over what the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom are. They might simply be the ability to apply wisdom properly in the context of everyday life. I'm inclined to think that that's what both word of wisdom and word of knowledge are. They have to do with applying scripture. You know, a person who's got the gift of the word of wisdom is the person who says, you know, here's what scripture says about this situation. Now, in charismatic circles, they would argue that the word of knowledge is direct revelation from God's special revelation, and the word of wisdom is something like that, too. The, the problem is that these things are not defined for us in Scripture. It's kind of like grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit. You can make some intelligent guesses based on the words, but we haven't been told a lot. But in James Proverbs... Sure, if anyone asks for wisdom... Right, right. so it's obtainable yes. by asking sure. versus a spiritual gift which is given. Well, okay. Let, that, your your questions are good ones. Well, here's what I would say, Becca. I think wisdom is available to anybody, any believer in the scriptures. Any believer can ask for wisdom to apply to a certain situation. That's James chapter 1. But it may be that the spiritual gift of the word of wisdom is a special ability 
to bring wisdom from the scriptures to bear on the matters of everyday life. Just like, you know, what's the gift of faith? It probably has something to do with prayer. All believers can pray, but some people may be better at it in a sense, better adapted, gifted in that area. Mary. Good point. Good point. It's evident. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, yeah, Jonathan Phelps, you know, or my, my brother Joey, who some of you met when he was here, his sister Alicia, they've got the gift of evangelism. They hold Bible studies in their home, and at church, just happens. They don't even have to try. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's got the gift. He really does. Can I ask you one more quick question? Following up on what Tommy asked. Okay. Why do you think Paul joined pastor teacher? I mean, there are other, there are other, I mean, you would think maybe pastor books. Come on in, guys. Why did, why did Paul join pastor teacher? Yeah, I mean, pastor Mercy sounds better. Pastor Evangelist. Pastor teacher, it does seem to be a whole lot of. Well, I, I, I guess. It wasn't, well, first of all, it wasn't Paul's idea. It was the Holy Spirit's idea, and, and I know you know that. Um, I guess... Shepherding, good shepherding of pastoring. There is an aspect. Well, not, o- not only is there an aspect, but I think teaching in many ways is the fundamental, the fundamental indispensable thing in pastoring. Um, you know, think about the book of Titus, which we're going through now, okay? Over and over again in that book, Paul says teach the people to do these things and do it by example. And both teaching them in the sense of giving them the information and teaching them in the sense of modeling the information. You know, I mean, that that's really what it's all about. So, I, you know, I, I... I guess I've always looked at it more from a shepherding standpoint. Well... And there, there is some of that in there. But, um, anyway. You, you could... You could yeah. I don't want to minimize other gifts, but I do think that teaching is sort of the sine qua non of of, of shepherding. If you can't teach, you can't lead. You know, think about what parents do with their kids. Glenn. Okay, good point. Yes. Yeah, I think teaching is a gift and pastor-teacher is a person who is a gift to the church. And yeah, and it's not necessarily true that the person who has the gift of teaching, I don't know that there's a gift of pastoring, though, but that he necessarily has to be a pastor. Okay? Tommy? Well, okay. Well, all I I can say, Tommy, is, is, I mean, it goes back to that weird thing in the listing of the gifts where some of the gifts were people and some of the gifts were capabilities given to people. I mean, it's, it's just not deniable that we have the offices of elder and deacon in the church and whether or not you see pastor as a separate office from those and that's debated okay it's clear that pastoring and teaching are part of what elders must be able to do so I don't really think it's elevating a gift I think it's recognizing what God has provided for the benefit of the church Um, there's a danger that we will elevate the people who have been provided to fulfill those roles in the church, and that would be a mistake. But... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That can be be a mistake, sure. Um, I'm I'm not sure I see what the problem is, to tell the truth. But... But I do think we need to recognize that the gifts are both people 
and abilities given to people. And that, I think that puts it all in perspective. Did you want me to go through all the titles you list after your name again? <laughs> Why don't you go outside and see if it's raining? Go outside and tell me when lightning strikes you. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about the gift of tongues. Okay? All right. Charismatic or Pentecostal or third wave churches hold certain views on the gift of tongues. They would often argue that that tongues is a gift of the ability to speak in a non-human language understood by God and angels. Things I'm putting up here are not necessarily things that I believe are correct. Okay, I'm trying to lay the groundwork for the discussion. Okay, they would argue that tongues are a sign of spiritual maturity associated. I can't spell there. Associated with the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Pentecostals, in particular, often believe that there's you're coming along as a Christian and there's this new higher ground you can reach when you become sinless and you reach this sinless state. You know that song we sing? Let me On higher ground, okay? That's false theology. It's wonderful imagery, but it's, it's twisting the scriptures, that song. Um, many would argue that tongues is the highest form of spiritual worship for which all believers should strive. Now, when you see that, I hope red lights are going off because of things we've already talked about. Um, They would often argue that tongues is a practice associated with the reception of direct revelation. Direct verbal communication from God. Okay? Now, a different perspective, a non-charismatic response to the previous viewpoints, I can't spell again, um, point, yeah, that's a great word, I like that. Um, Tongues is a God-given supernatural ability to speak in real but unlearned human languages, languages that other people know but you don't know. You know, if I got up in October in Hong Kong and started speaking Chinese, um, they would argue that tongues are not or is not a sign of spiritual maturity and in fact, often those who practice this claimed gift are spiritually immature or proud. It's sometimes evidence of spiritual problems. They would argue that tongues has little value in worship except with interpretation and that there is no reason to seek tongues from the Spirit. They would argue that although direct revelation tongues and miraculous healings were given by God during the apostolic age, these are rarely, if ever, given by the Spirit today. Now you can see we've got two diametrically opposite views of the nature and purpose of tongues. Now, unfortunately, this is not a slam dunk. Okay? You all think I'm going to say that this is the correct viewpoint. But it's not the whole story. And you'll see why. Okay. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 16. This is a passage that is often overlooked in the discussion of the gift of tongues, and it's actually quite important. The end of Mark 16, in verse 17, the Lord says this, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. What is this, Mark 16? Mark 16, verses 17 and 18. Your Bible doesn't have it? It's bracketed or something? Okay. This is in the ending of Mark, which some of your Bibles say isn't real, and I strongly disagree with that. I think it is authentic. My personal opinion is that the the predictions that are made here apply to the apostles 
And you can see all of these things except the drinking of deadly poison in the ministry of the apostles. Okay? But there is a mention of tongues. And people often overlook that. Okay, now Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, we're not going to read through that, but you've all looked at that passage. The tongues that they spoke on that day included normal human speech, but that speech was odd and it seemed to have included babbling too. Because some of the people say, wow, this is cool, they're proclaiming the wonderful works of God, and other people say they're drunk. Now, how do you explain both of those things? You look at the words that are used, it seems that they were both speaking intelligibly and making some unintelligible noise. Only the apostles spoke in tongues on that day, as I understand it. And there were also the miracles of this mighty blowing wind and the tongues of fire that appeared over their head. And people reacted in two ways, as we've just noted. Now in Acts 8, 10, and 19, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and the Old Testament saints are added to the body of Christ. You may never have noticed this, but there are four places in the book of Acts where people seem to speak in tongues. It's the apostles, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and the Old Testament saints. There are lots of other people saved in Acts who don't speak in tongues. And you say, why? And I believe the answer is, that speaking in tongues was a divine sign from God that the keys to the kingdom which were given to Peter were being used to open the gate of salvation to each one of these groups. Think about it. The Jews thought salvation was only for the Jews, but Jesus had said, preach the gospel to all nations in my name. And the Jews didn't do it. Did you ever notice that? First eight chapters of the book of Acts, they don't do it. So God sends persecution in, and then they get scattered. And I believe Philip speaks to the Samaritans, Peter speaks to the Gentiles, and Paul brings in the Old Testament saints. And each time, these people speak in tongues. And I think it's a sign that the gospel is going out to everybody. This includes all the possible groups of people. We've got Jews in chapter 2. Samaritans, Gentiles, and then when I say Old Testament saints, these are people who had heard John the Baptist proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, but never heard of Jesus. They were already saved, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Paul says, have you received the Holy Spirit? They say, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them about the Holy Spirit, and then what happens? They speak in tongues. It was evidence that they had been baptized into the body invisibly by the Holy Spirit, but God was giving a visible manifestation so that, so that really, so that the apostles couldn't say the gospel is only for Jews. Have you ever heard this before? Some of you have. Okay, good. Okay, now the last piece of evidence is 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And again, we're not going to read through all those passages. But 1 Corinthians 12 speaks about tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, there's a lot of talk about tongues. And Paul says there, if I speak in the tongues of angels and nobody understands it, it's no good to the church. But he doesn't say that the tongues that are spoken, which are the tongues of angels, aren't real. He just says they're of no good to the church unless it's done with interpretation. Okay? He also says at the end of that chapter, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, which means if you speak in tongues, don't tell me you can't stop. If it's the divine gift of tongues, you can shut up when it's appropriate for you to shut up. And what does Paul say? How many should speak in tongues at the meeting of the church? two or three at most, and only if there's an interpreter present. Well, what, if you walk into a church and there are 20 people speaking in tongues and nobody is interpreting, is that proper? It's not. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not the biblical gift of tongues. It could just be that these people have the gift, but they're being very disobedient to God in the way they use it. Could be. I don't think that's what's going on. 
but it could be. Okay. Now, there are basically well, there are basically two views on tongues, and then there's a third view that I'm going to present to you, and you can take this or leave it as you as you like. Okay? The anti-tongues view says that modern tongues, what's going on in charismatic and Pentecostal and third wave churches today, are not biblical tongues because they're not in real human languages that are unknown to the speakers. Now, linguists, well-trained linguists, can go listen to a person speak a language they have never heard before, and within about 20 minutes, they can begin to pick up the structure of the language because they know the tools. Okay? Linguists have gone to Pentecostal and charismatic meetings over and over again, and they listen to it, and they come out and they say, there's no language. There's no content in that. It is meaningless babbling. There's no structure. There's no information conveyed in that sound. Generally. Now, as I say this, I'm not denying there have been reports of missionaries who on rare occasions have actually, for a short period of time, had the ability to speak a language they never spoke before. Okay? And I'm not I'm not willing to deny the truth of those things because I haven't been there, but such reports are quite limited and they're nothing like what's going on in, in charismatic or Pentecostal churches. Okay, I just said the second thing. Examination generally shows that modern tongues is meaningless, repetitious babbling. Third point, the necessity of tongues passed with the completion of the canon. Okay, now let's talk about this one a little bit. This argument is presented in two different ways. One way of presenting this argument is to say that the sign gifts, the miraculous, dynamic, obviously supernatural gifts, the ability to walk into a room and put your handkerchief on the table and have somebody touch it and be healed. Okay? The ability to speak in tongues, the ability to predict the future and have it come true. Those are gifts that God gave during the apostolic age in order to validate that the apostles were truly his agents. The argument would be that since tongues is in that group of gifts, and since the apostles are gone, and since it was the work of the apostles to get scripture into our hands, there's no need for God to give those gifts anymore because there are no apostles to validate anymore. That's one way that this argument is given. Okay. The other way this argument is given is that it's taken out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in that section, when I was a child, I thought as a child, but now when the mature thing comes, I don't do that anymore. 1 Corinthians 13.11 When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And then the previous verse, verse 10, When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Many expositors will argue that those two verses are telling us that the sign gifts will disappear when the canon is complete. And they say that the perfect thing is the canon of Scripture. I don't find that argument convincing, personally. I don't think that's what it's about. Okay? I think the previous argument that I gave you about the purpose of sign gifts as validation for the apostles is a more coherent argument. Okay? Well, that's the anti-tongues view. There are problems with it, which you will see in a few moments. The pro-tongues view says that modern tongues are biblical tongues because, number one, they fit the Corinthian model of language only meaningful to God and angels. Well, who am I to listen to somebody speaking in tongues and say that's not a divine language? Because the divine language is something that only angels and God know, and I'm not an angel and I'm not God. They got an argument here. Okay, second point. 1 Corinthians 12.1, Paul says, desire the best gifts, and they think that tongues are the best gift. Well, I argued against that, 
But Paul does say in chapter 14 that he speaks in tongues, doesn't he? Did you notice that? Now, personally, I think Paul is saying, I speak more languages than any of you do. I don't think he's talking about the babbling kind of divine and angelic speech that they were talking about. But that's disputed. Okay? The pro-tongues view would argue that in the book of Acts, receiving the indwelling Holy Spirit is linked to tongues. And what happened there was not baptism into the body. Now think back to your pneumatology and your soteriology. Remember what being baptized into the body is? It's what happens at the very moment when you're regenerated. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you and you become identified with the body. You become part of the body of Christ. Well, pro-tongues people would say that the reception of the indwelling spirit is linked to tongues in the book of Acts, but what's happening in the book of Acts is not merely baptism in the body, into the body. It's being filled with the spirit or it's receiving the second blessing and moving to this higher level. Okay? Can you see the point? Now, if you're thinking carefully, there are problems with both of those views. And the reason there are problems with both of those views is that speaking a known human language that you have never learned is biblical, and apparently speaking an angelic or divine language that nobody understands is also biblical. It did happen at Corinth, and Paul recognizes that it happened. The problem with the two views is that one only looks at this and says this is what it has to be, and the other one only looks at this and says this is what it has to be. And the fact of the matter is both of them happen in Scripture. You see the difficulty? Okay. Well, here's an alternate view, and I didn't make this up. I found this in a very interesting book. Okay. There is biblical support for babbling under the influence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Saul did it. Do you remember that story? Okay. Acts chapter 2 apparently included both babbling and intelligible human speech. That's why some people said they're drunk and others said this is amazing. They're proclaiming the wonderful works of God. We have to explain both of those. Okay? Now, here's where the ideas of this guy in your notes, I think his name is Smith, come in. He talks about something called exalted memory. Now somewhere in my memory banks and in the memory banks of my wife and my kids, there's a lot of Filipino and Chinese speech. We heard it for years. Never learned to speak it, but if somebody knew how to reach down into our brains, they could probably pull up a lot of Chinese and Filipino kind of like recorded, it's recorded there on the tape. And when we hear those languages, we recognize them. We don't know what they mean, but we know that's Hokkien, Chinese, or it's Filipino. Okay? Well, there is a known psychological phenomenon that under certain kind of influences, it's possible for a person to recall and to mimic things that he has heard spoken in another language, even when he didn't understand them. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not denying that what happened on the day of Pentecost was miraculous. Not at all. I'm suggesting, however, that God did the miracle by enabling the apostles to call to mind praises of God that they had heard from other believe other other believers who spoke other languages and then allowing them to speak the same things. Now think about this. When Peter, we're going to go over on this, but I hope you don't mind. When Peter preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of his speech, people were hostile to him, weren't they? Because he was accusing them of killing Christ. But before he gave his speech, when the apostles spoke in tongues, nobody was offended by what they were saying. They just said, we hear these people proclaiming the wonderful works of God. 
they weren't proclaiming anything about Jesus Christ. They were just proclaiming the wonderful works of God. Whatever it was that the apostles were shouting out that was intelligible to the watching people, it was something that was theologically acceptable to them. They might have been talking about the Exodus. They might have been talking about, um, you know, the mercy of God, things that Jews who would come to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem would have been talking about for years and years and years. Okay? Are you following me? So it's possible that what was happening was that God was miraculously making them replay the tape recorders in their heads in which they had heard believers from other cultures and languages, but Jews who came to Passover, to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, praise God, but in languages that the apostles didn't know. Okay, that's this idea of exalted memory. Now, the tongues of 1 Corinthians fits the Old Testament model of ecstatic babbling, except that the Corinthians were using it to puff themselves up and they were not exercising control of the gift. In other words, what was happening at Corinth may have been like what happened in the Old Testament. It may have been a true divine miracle, but the Corinthians' problem was not that they were faking something. The problem was that they were misusing it. Do you follow me here? Okay. Now, you see the way I finished this statement, okay? Except that the use for self-aggrandizement and lack of, of control argues that it was phony. Well, it, it might have been, and it might not have been. Okay? I think most, if not all, of what goes on today is phony. I, I've never been impressed by tongue speaking. I haven't heard it very many times. But it may or may not have been phony in the Corinthian church. Mary. Sure, sure. It's the right thing to do. language that you don't understand and that's going to be a sign of judgment yes yes prophecy benefits believers and tongues is mainly for outsiders making is very important. Okay? It is the improper use of tongues in the modern era that argues most strongly against it being the authentic biblical gift. Now that, that passage you point out in 1 Corinthians 14 that says tongues are a sign for unbelievers, it's easy to tie that back to Acts chapter 2. And because when the apostles spoke in tongues, that actually called the attention of the unbelievers to what Peter was about to preach. And in that preaching, Peter condemned them and then challenged them to change their minds about who Jesus Christ was. But I, I, think, I, I think what you're saying is the heart of the matter. It's not absolutely necessary for us to determine whether a person who is speaking in tongues is, has the gift or not. 
it's generally sufficient to say, is that person using the gift for what Scripture says it's for? And the answer, as far as I know, is always no. Okay? Let's go on, and I think that's what you're going to see here. Whoops. Let me go back one. 1 Corinthians does, this is the fifth point, 1 Corinthians does allow for the possibility of spirit-induced babbling, although such babbling should be interpreted and must be under the speaker's control. Okay? And that's kind of along the lines of what you're just saying, except you're being more specific that the, perp, the benefit of tongues is for unbelievers. In fact, Paul says, if an unbeliever walks into a church and he sees believers talking to each other in tongues, he's going to think you're nuts. Because the church is supposed to be a place where believers are intelligently interacting in order to edify each other. But if you're all talking gibberish and nobody understands what anybody is saying, they're going to walk out the door and say, that's a bunch of nuts and I want nothing to do with them. And it's true. Okay. Evaluating modern tongues practice. This is my last slide. It is wrong to use tongues as a badge of spiritual maturity. Paul condemned it, first of all, because it was an act of pride. And second of all, logically speaking, because not every believer gets the gift of tongues. And, and you can't seek it. It's not evidence of maturity. If gifts are given when you get saved, the fact that you have a gift says nothing about your maturity at all, does it? Okay, secondly, tongues are not evidence of baptism with the Holy Spirit, that is, complete sanctification, reaching sinlessness, nor are they evidence of being filled with the Spirit. We talked about filling last week, remember? Okay, third. There is little reason to expect God to give the gift of tongues today since his purpose was primarily to evaluate, I'm sorry, to validate prophets, including apostles as divine messengers. That doesn't mean he can't. If God chooses to, it's fine with me. But if he does it, I expect on the basis of scripture that the people to whom he gives the gift will use it biblically according to the restrictions that are found in scripture. Okay? On the basis of 1 Corinthians 14, we shouldn't categorically deny the existence of or prohibit the use of tongues. Okay, And this is where those of us who don't believe in tongues have to be careful. Okay, It would be wrong to go farther than Scripture and say there is no such gift. I think it would even be wrong to say that God cannot give it today. You can say there's no reason to expect him to give it today, but it's wrong to say that he can't give it today. And, and this is probably one place where I don't quite agree with the DTS doctrinal statement, because I think they're stronger on this. Um, but the restrictions of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the necessity of control, self-control, and interpretation forbid making tongues a focus of worship. And there's no basis on which to prohibit people speaking tongues in private. Paul seems to recognize that that might happen. Somebody wants to go into his room and close the door and babble to God, that's between him and God. Now, having said that, I believe there are demonic counterfeits of tongues, and I think those are dangerous. And I don't think I mentioned it in my slides, but it's in your notes. Speaking in tongues is very common in many pagan religions. Okay. Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, where I went to school. They're, they're, I believe they're strict cessationists, which essentially argues that the gift of tongues is not being given today. And I don't think that you can defend that strong a statement from Scripture. Okay. Most modern practice of tongues is disproved by God, and I know I've said this before three times, because A, too many people do it, because B, interpretation is not supplied, and because C, it's out of control. And this would apply, by the way, to a lot of the other things that came up in the third wave movement like holy laughter, holy barking, holy dancing, holy vomit. I don't know if you ever heard about that one. There are people who are claiming that. In Guatemala? Yeah. Okay. There's nothing holy about that stuff. Okay. That's the end of my discussion of tongues. Questions? Becca. 
uh, Surprised by the Spirit. I read it shortly after it came out, and I wasn't impressed at all, frankly. Um, I sort of... I didn't know I didn't know Dr. Gear. He was at the seminary right when I came and he left shortly after. I sort of got the impression that what happened to him was that he had kind of missed a lot of the richness of Christian experience because of his background and when somebody came along and offered him something more exciting, he sort of jumped for it without thinking about it. But that's just my take on it. Pat when we were going to William Chapel, Dr. Johnson had been to Germany for some time. He came back for a supper on Sunday night. It was his first night back. He gets up and he can sit in the seat. He gets up and starts speaking German. And then he sits down. And Hans Menardus, who was German, he gets up and interprets for him. And then he sits down and I thought, well, that's pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, there that was tongues and interpretation, but probably not the spiritual gift. Okay, let's uh, let's break until eight o'clock.